Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Reliscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions in life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show, um, Dr. Natasha Strait. Really, really excited to chat to you today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. This is a really cool thing you guys are doing. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to have you as well. Uh, you're the owner and CEO of the Better You Institute. Can you tell um, our audience a bit more about what you do? Sure. Um, so we, it's a kind of an all-encompassing uh, psychotherapy practice where we treat children five and up um, and individuals, couples, families, and we're trying to get some groups up and running. Um, and it, I would say we do have some specialties, trauma-focused, um, intergenerational trauma specifically, um, CPTSD, things like that. But then also um, sex therapy, um, but then really just a generalist type of therapy. Um, and we're trying to this year get some um, like educational e-learning type things up and running. So that's our next thing that we have on deck. Yeah, that that sounds really exciting um, and super cool. We are going to chat about lust specifically today um, and sexual desire. Uh, so it's going to be a bit of a spicy one. But real, to just uh, before we kind of get into that, uh, we have a section called Have You Met Natasha Strait? Uh, in which I ask you a few quick questions so that our audience can get to know you a little bit. Are you ready? I am ready. Fantastic. What is your favorite book? Um, currently, it's What Happened to You by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. Okay. Okay. I haven't read that one. Um, that's on my list, though. Are you enjoying it? Yes. I, I've read it several times. I've recommended it to friends, family, clients. I just think it's a really good book for understanding kind of how people got to where they are kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Maybe I'm getting back into reading. So maybe that'll be on my 2023 list for the yes. year. Um, yeah. What about a favorite movie? So I'm not really a movie person or like pops person. So I'm going to go old school and tell you my favorite childhood movie, which was Andre. Um, it's about a seal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I've seen that one, but I love it. I'm going to check it out <laughs> as soon as I can. <laughs> uh, what is um, a favorite podcast or podcast that you're really into at the moment? Um, currently, I've been listening to a lot of Rethinking, which is Adam Grant's podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, he's local to Philadelphia, as am I, so I kind of have a connection there with him. But, I mean, he's great in the way he kind of conceptualizes things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what about a famous role model that you've looked up to? Um, I would say I have two, probably Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, and then Marie Curie, kind of taking, like, feminine power and science and 
mixing them together and then you get me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, those two are huge ones, I think. I think we've had Ruth, RBG. Um, someone has brought up RBG for that question before. So well, she's understandably a favorite. Yes. Um, what is the last course that you completed? Uh, so for our license, we had to take CEUs, but they're not really courses. I would say probably the last thing is my doctorate. I just graduated um, and finished out my dissertation and everything. So I'll count that. When when was the graduation? Um, it was in December. I finished over the summer um, oh on maternity leave, actually. So right, it was a big summer right. for me. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, that kind of brings us to the end of that segment. Um, so our audience has got to know you now. We're all kind of nice and cozy. And we'll move on to our next uh, segment uh, where we talk about lust and sexual desire. I, our, our podcast is about relationships. So to contextualize our conversation, I wanted to ask you, what is a relationship to you? How would you describe a relationship? Yeah, I think in its most basic form, it's a connection between two or more things. Um, but when you think about it in terms of like human relationships, I think of it as like an emotionally focused or attachment based thing um, where it becomes quite complex. Um, people try to have simplified it into categories, right? So you think of relationships with your family, friends, acquaintances, and then what we're going to talk a lot about is romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. um, but I think within each of these categories, there can lie such an intricate connection making up relationship or relationships that it's tough to define the term. Um, I think it's different for everyone. And even for one person, it can differ depending on who they're creating the relationship with and how they define that within that dyad or triad or whatever. Mm -hmm. And in your opinion, do relationships, romantic relationships specifically, still hold the same meaning and importance as they did maybe decades ago? I don't think so. I think, well, to go way back, right, I think evolutionarily we had to create different types of relationships out of survival. Um, and so I've kind of, this is my own kind of theorizing, but I, I think that we cycle between relationships for convenience slash survival and relationships for love. So how it started out is we needed other people to really stay alive. And over time, as technology has offered up different things, you think of the um, uh, like industrial revolution and people came to cities and they could go away from their family and still kind of survive, they could open themselves up to being in relationships for love because um, they didn't need to like trade their cattle or their land, for so to speak. Um, and then I think it, it, it transitioned back, I would say like the 1950s and 60s uh, was really kind of the last time that we saw people dating out of convenience. So Joe down the street who has a nice family, believes in the same higher power as you, has a good job, can provide. Um, and then we saw this revolution for women specifically. We got birth control, um, more equal rights within the workplace. And so you saw, at least in heterosexual couples, um, this transition again out of uh, convenience and what the relationship can provide and instead talking about getting into relationships for love. 
um, also technology, like I don't have to marry the guy down the street because I can fly across the world to my true love and have this romantic getaway weekend um, at a click of a button by buying a flight. So um, mm-hmm. I think it ebbs and flows. And I'm curious to see if we'll go back into marriage for convenience or relationships for convenience um, after this. But I think right now we're in get into the relationship for love phase. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I get the feeling that people are a lot more successful, not successful, um, almost the opposite of that, selective uh, in terms of they are testing the waters quite a lot more as opposed to trying to settle down at an early age. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think, again, probably because of technology and just like people are realizing that there's so much out there for them to embrace and live that it's not just about finding a relationship, getting married, having kids and working, that there's a lot out there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, I guess with those, with all of that context in mind, how do you then define lust and sexual desire? Are they the same thing, first of all? Um, I think so. I think there's a nuanced difference. I would say, at least from my own practice and kind of what I notice, um, interestingly, like when you go to research it or at least do like a simple Google search, lust often comes up as um, like a religious sin. Um, But I think just in what I found in my own practice, um, lust is the act of the intense desire. And then sexual desire is just kind of like the feeling of something being there without necessarily the act of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So you think about like lusting after someone you don't hear they sexually desire after someone kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. And I guess, how does that affect relationships? The sexual desire and lust? Yes. I think it can make it very complicated um, or it can make it really simple. Um, People define relationships very differently anywhere from um, like friends with benefits where it really is just about sex and sexual desire and lust to these really intimate life partners that has sexual desire in it, but it also has a bunch more. Um, And I think when people are not communicating properly around what type of relationship it is, and if they're going into it thinking it's one thing and it's actually something else, and then the sexual desire can maybe murk up some of the relationship parts. Mm -hmm. Would you separate, um, I guess, sexual desire from romantic desire? Do you feel like they are different things or do you feel they're just a bit more linked and it's a little complicated? I think they can be different and the same. I think um, sexual desire can be on its own. I think that love and um, the desire for loving someone entails sexual desire for many people. There are some people, asexuals, um, that do not uh, want or need the sexual desire aspect in their relationship. Um, But I do think that they coincide often. They're both chemical responses. Falling in love with someone changes your brain chemistry for first 16 to 18 months of the relationship. 
sexual desire is about hormones and different things surging through your brain, your body. So there's cert- certainly a physical component to both. Hmm. I didn't know that love changed your like brain for that long. I always assumed it was like maybe four to five months. Maybe that's just my personal personal experience. Yeah, I mean, very true. Yeah. yeah, that's a really long time. I, I did not expect that. Um, yeah. Uh, is how, how does sex, in what ways is sexual desire beneficial to a romantic relationship? I mean... I think it can vary for everyone in terms of the role that sexual desire plays in their romantic relationships. For some people to feel sexual desire toward another person is an indicator of something within the relationship. Um, And then for others to feel the desire from another person is really fulfilling. It gives them validation, maybe plays into their sense of self. Um, so when a person feels confident, they're open to so much more than when they're down on themselves. Um, and so I think it can really add to the relationship, um, Mm -hmm. and just kind of create a depth that maybe if it's not there, the relationship doesn't have. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, is there, is there an unhealthy level of sexual desire in a relationship? Is that possible? I don't know. I think healthy is interpretive. Um, If you look at like the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, our DSM, what we use to diagnose people, um, Mm -hmm. unhealthy levels of things are when it tends to impact a person's day to day. So you think of if it's causing distress within their social life, their family, their work or school. Um, So if you look at that lens to try to get a concept of how a person's sexual desires are impacting them, um, you might ask, like, is this imposing on your ability to go out with your friends um, if you're having to act on the sexual desire? Um, Another thing is if you're acting on sexual desire, if you have sexual desire for things that are not legal, um, depending on where you are. Um, And then I think the most the one that probably your listeners want to hear about the most is when there's quote incompatibility or one partner has higher sexual desire than the other partner. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that certainly creates hiccups, but a lot of the work that I do is actually helping couples realize that they don't have a sexual desire issue. Sexual desire is there. They're just accessing it wrong for the lower quote lower um, sexual desire partner. And once you can figure out how to access their sexual desire, it's like a switch goes off and it's there for them. So, um, I, I think, yes, it could become problematic. And certainly if they don't talk about it or they don't get in with a sex therapist or they're not reading up or trying different things, it can become a huge elephant in the room for couples. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, especially for that latter option of, you know, a, a different levels of, of managing or not managing desire, but um, approaching their desire and unlocking that. I think there's a communication aspect that's there as well that, that perhaps may not have been happening in the relationship and other sectors. Is that something that you found in, in your practice? The communication around sexual desire. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm assuming like if there is an incompatibility, it might just be that they're not talking about it. Yeah. 
uh, and also kind of taking you back to that brain chemistry changing in the first mm. one and a half years, um, you have rose colored glasses on. You don't see some things or you um, take different risks than you do later on in a more committed long-term relationship. The beginning of a relationship is really fiery and it's intense and um, there's more sexual desire than maybe in a long-term relationship also just your life is usually different when you're starting out dating uh you're really focused on that person versus if you end up having kids with them or you're marrying them or your life gets real you start focusing back on your job these things start to impose and um so again you may have the desire but it's getting covered up by all of these things um but yeah at the end of the day sexual compatibility through desire levels um, that the first couple of months of a relationship can really like, it dupes you. And then you come out of that and you're like, wait, this is who I really am. And now we're not connecting in that area. Yeah, for sure. And it's kind of, I I like the way you put it. It's kind of when you said that people who are kind of at the dating stage and, and having all of those like love hormones and changing their brain and going through the honeymoon phase, if you will, um, are probably at a very different point in their life than people who are in a committed relationship. Like by the time you're in a committed relationship, you've changed your life to like, you've molded it around this, this person, this other person. So things like change a lot. Yeah. And that changes again, how some people access their sexual desire. Um, women, especially, uh, research shows that they are more into like nuanced things, right? So um, they're invigorated when there's a new thing, new sex position or new something where men don't need that as much. And so if you think about the beginning of the relationship, it's all nuanced, it's all new. Um, And then over time, it becomes less new, more repetitive. And that sometimes can um, be detrimental to the desire aspect of things. Mm-hmm. I've never thought about it that way before. That actually makes a, a lot of sense uh, when you when you when you say it that way. Um, how do cultural and societal expectations influence how people experience lust and sexual desire? Yeah, I would say biologically, we are driven within our sexual desires and drives and things like that, right? But how we act on it or how we um, react to it, that is deemed by society, right? So we think about the sexual messaging that we received from our parents or um, classmates growing up, or if we watched pornography or we didn't watch pornography. Um, So I think sexual messaging from childhood and then the culture where we live certainly impacts things. If you think about different cultures who are okay with public displays of affection. You see people sitting on a bench in a park and they're holding hands and they might be kissing. Whereas in other countries, that's illegal. Um, And so certainly what's allowed and how you act on it is impacted um, both by like laws and just different areas and how people grew up. And um, religion also, I think historically has played a big part in how people act on their sexual desires. Mm-hmm. I this is I guess a question that I've always wondered about and it's a bit of a stupid one but bear with me no stupid um, 
<laughs> there's this like I guess myth that people who grew up in cultural backgrounds or religious backgrounds that repressed sexual desire um, and less experience it more strongly later in life or in more kind of out of the box ways like I'm thinking off the top of my head that Catholic schoolgirl trope um, is that true is there any weight to that I mean there's this idea of like people want what they can't have um, and when you so I don't know the research I could look mm-hmm. it up and find some things on it so this is all just kind of me talking from different client stories and different things that I know but um, I think that when you grow up in a world where something's not normalized for you and then you have this adult brain with a concept where you don't really know how it fits in or what to do with it and you have adult money and you have adult time and you have adult like uh, leisure, be I don't know. So you go out and yeah, you experience or experiment with some things. Um, On the flip side of that, though, you also like there's a thing called Catholic guilt. And um, a lot of people have a lot of shame around sex and having sex um, and what they learned, like save themselves for marriage kind of thing. And then they didn't save themselves for marriage. And so what does that mean about them that they didn't do that? Um, So I think it can go both ways certainly people um kind of go on like a revolution with themselves around finally i'm out of the house and i get to do whatever i want to um and then there's other people who maybe want to do that mentally but emotionally and physically it's very tough for them and um they carry a lot of shame around that given some of the um normalizations or lack thereof around sex and sexual desire Mm-hmm. How does someone tackle that level of shame? A lot of therapy. No, um, <laughs> it's tough. I mean, shame hits us in our core. Um, many people like the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is I did a bad thing, um, but shame is I am bad. It's part of their identity. It gets ingrained very deeply. And so it's a lot of undoing. Um The book, What Happened to You, is a great book for kind of talking about how we store some of these experiences that we've had or the messaging that we've had in our brain, in our body. Um, And so you have to kind of figure out like where it got stored. Well, one, what you learned, then where it got stored, how you're interpreting it and how it plays out. Um, And I'm I'm an attachment based therapist, so. I always kind of go backwards in order to go forwards. I want to understand first all the intricacies. Um, kind of the the analogy that I give is you wouldn't just go in and change the car's oil. You got to look under the hood first and figure out what it actually is. And then, oh, yep, it's the oil. Okay, now I'm going to change the oil. So um, you could really have to look to see like what's all at play in the shame around sex and sexual desire. And then from there... Um, helping to empower someone to embrace and take back their sexuality and their pleasure and all of that. Mm -hmm. We've talked a fair bit. We've had an episode on like attachment styles in the past. I'm curious as to how attachment styles connects to sexual desire. Is there a direct connection or is it like slightly more complicated than that? 
so kind of going back to what we just talked about, like some people really want what they can't have. Those are maybe the anxiously attached folks. Um, and so they are going to desire maybe the people who make them chase them and the person who uh, is just kind of playing with them and doesn't want a serious relationship, just wants sex. But the person with the anxiously attached, um, anxious attachment really is thinking this is the one, this is it, this I'm going to. So they are sexually desiring them. They're loving on them. They're lusting. They're all of the things very quickly and intensely. Um just to kind of find out maybe some of that was a farce. Um, and then the avoidant attached, right? You, those might be your life masturbators um, and they don't need to act on their sexual desire with another person. They're happy to do it on their own. Um, this is all just kind of off the top of my head. Like, I don't know if there's actual research behind the attachment styles and sexual desire. It'd be interesting though to look up and I might go do that afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let us, let us know what you think. If you find any cool papers, we could add it into the show notes, um, as well. Um, how, how does a, how do you manage, um, a difference in sexual desire with your partner? Sure. First, I think just it's hard, right? Like a lot of us have grown up with this idea that sex is taboo. Um, and so facing, a difficult conversation to even just acknowledge, hey, I want more sex in our relationship. I want less sex. I feel pressured to have sex or whatever the case may be. Um, it's very hard to even just come out with that. And so I really honor my clients and other people that I've talked to that have been able to have those really difficult, emotional, vulnerable conversations. And then in terms of like working through it, Kind of what I touched on, I think really digging into, does this person truly have a low desire? Does this person truly have a high desire? Um, and like, what is normal or what is typical? Uh, I think it's for the couple or the the relation people in the relationships to decide for themselves, like, what does that look like for them? Because I have some couples, they have sex and they maybe one time a month, the one partner with quote, higher desire masturbates and they're perfectly fine with that. And then I have other couples who um, are not happy with that. They want to be in sync with one another. They want frequency of once or twice a week. They um, And it really causes a wedge. It's a lot of hurt feelings to not feel desired by your partner um, can be really hurtful. And then to feel like you're letting someone down that you you know you love them, you're into them, you want them, but your body just isn't doing what it you want it to, um, you feel broken and it's really hard. So I think helping couples navigate those conversations um, and then depending on what we find about their desire and how they access it, I give them different behavioral homeworks to try to um, repair if there's a lot of like pain and hurt, uh, build trust um, and sometimes just re- I think a lot of couples get stuck in like a very linear way of thinking about sex. So we look at each other across the room. Oh, we're making out. Oh, we're taking each other's clothes off. Oh, okay. This means we're going to have sex. Do I want to have sex? I don't know. And oh, they're in their head. And because it's from that look across the room that they jump to 
I have to perform and maybe get to an orgasm and all of these things. So some of what I do is just kind of create safety that we can look at each other across the room in a really lustful kind of desirous way. And that's all it has to be. It doesn't have to go further. Um, and I think for especially the low desire partner, that takes a lot of pressure off of them, which then in turn helps them access their desire that is most of the time there. Um, at the end of the day, though, too, I um, I always tell clients to go get checked out by a medical provider, make sure that physically everything is going well for them hormonally, Um pelvic floor functionality, things like that. Because um, if there is something going on physically, you want to catch it. I'm on the psychological side, right? So we talk about sexual scripts and what so what you learned about sex and desire and your body for pleasure, um, all of that. And But if it's a medical thing, like my hands are kind yeah. of tough. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever come across a situation where a couple truly isn't compatible and if so like what is your advice to those people yeah um one again i think like coming to that is really hard um but i don't know it's it's tough because i think sex gets people through my door and say okay we have a problem let's fix it But then as you start to talk to them and you unravel some things, you realize this isn't a sex problem. Sex is the byproduct. This is a relationship problem. Um, You guys aren't communicating or maybe you're not compatible in other ways that then equals you not having sex. Um, And so I would say more often than not, at least in my practice, I get couples who are not compatible in other areas, which then leads them to not being compatible sexually. Um, and on the contrary, I get couples who are having amazing sex, but then they, they're so toxic in other ways. Um, and so kind of circling back to your question of, have I ever had couples who are incompatible? I would say, yeah. Um, I think a big one is just like what people are interested in. Some people who, um, want to explore the BDSM or kink world or, um, are want to go invite people in or want to go to someone else um someone else's relationship for sexual satisfaction or sexual exploration and the other partner is not for that um so i would say it's about what they're desiring in the relationship or sexual relationship that people tend to be incompatible or gridlocked in what they're willing to accept or where they're willing to go Um, And that's probably the most common in terms of like the sexual incompatibility. But in terms of like, I touch the person here, we make out here, do this, then like we can work on that if it's awkward or if it's uh, kind of choppy, like that's something that most couples can get through. Mm -hmm. I think it's also like, even if it is an important aspect that's incompatible, is it kind of the only aspect that's keeping your relationship going there are probably some couples out there for whom it might not be as they're probably coming into your clinic because it's important for them but there are probably some couples out there who are listening who perhaps it's not as big a value um and maybe for them it's kind of what else is there in the relationship that you can kind of lean on yeah 
And I think people find themselves in sexless relationships for a variety of different reasons. One is, yeah, maybe it's just not that important to me. We agree on that. And it's not worth our energy or our time to work out why we're maybe not connecting in that way. Um, I think medically, a lot of people find themselves in sexually uh, sexless marriages or relationships. Um, trust, it, when there's infidelity, I think for a long time, it's hard to introduce sex back into the relationship. So, yeah, and I, I would say some people are happy not being not having sex for a very long time, if not forever. And some people, they decide for a certain time frame that they won't be having sex because of something and then they reintroduce it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. That I'm going to kind of, I guess, move on from this to our practice slash habit experiment debrief. Because um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you take a sex positive approach to your practice. So I guess I wanted to talk about what is something that you do to manage um to find sexual desire rather when it's lost? Yeah, I think just awareness of your body. So mm-hmm. I do a body scan with clients um, and it's it's not sexual in any way. We're not talking about like, where in your body do you feel aroused? While they can take the exercise and put that in on their own, I just really want them to be aware of like, what's happening in their body? What do they notice? Do they notice if they're tight in their shoulders? Do they notice butterflies in their stomach or their foot is tapping? Um, Sometimes when I'm in the room with someone and they're talking about something that's kind of scary or vulnerable and they're fidgeting and I point that out, they don't even know that they're fidgeting. Um, And so I want someone to be able to have intense emotions and pay attention to their body and how their body is responding and where their headspace is. So... Um, I kind of focus on all of those and I walk them through um, like a mindfulness exercise where I kind of narrate to them, pay attention to your head and move it around and see how that feels. And I kind of go down and um, and I encourage clients to use that. Like if they're walking to their office, can you pay attention to how your feet feel on the ground? What do you notice? Um, what do you notice in your environment? What do you hear? Kind of paying attention to their senses. Mm-hmm. Walk me through what that exercise would look like. You want me to do it with it? Uh, sure. All right. I'll, I'll try it. Yeah. Okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. So we'll do uh, an abbreviated version. Uh, okay. Tell me where we'll do stress. So tell me where you hold stress. Like physically? Is it? Probably in like my kind of chest and like abdomen area is kind of where I tend to feel it the most. So how I would typically do this, and again, we're going to do an abbreviated version. I would start you with your head and then I'm going to go down to your feet and up. And I'm going to have, I would have you grab your stress in your stomach and chest and I would have you move it out and eventually you're going to flick it through your fingers. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the grander version of it. But um, we'll have you, so if you want to grab whatever's in your guttural region right now and pull it up, let's do your shoulders. So when you're ready, feel free to have your eyes open or closed um, and just kind of pay attention to your shoulders right now. 
how they're resting. Are they tense? Are they loose? Can you roll them back and forth or up and down? And as you do that, do you notice your muscles moving and do you feel knots in your back or does it feel nice and loose and relaxed? And that as you move down into your bicep and tricep, maybe flex them and move them up and down. Do you feel the muscles as they can do that? And are they connecting into your elbow? Move your elbows around. And do you feel your shirt kind of touching your skin? Does it feel soft or does it feel rough? Can you feel the air kind of moving as your arms go up and down? Move down to your forearm and move that muscle, maybe move by moving your wrists and feel the stretch or if you feel it contracting. And then again, keeping in mind, you're taking your stress also and you're moving it down. Wiggle it in your fingers. Can you move around and feel the air on your fingers? What do your muscles feel as you're doing this? And then when you're ready, take the stress and flick it out of your body. So like that. Sure. Am I doing it? Yeah. There's no right way. however you want to do it. And then when you're ready, open your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel a little better. Um, I think being on camera added to the stress a little bit. <laughs> like it probably maybe my advice to anyone who's watching this is to do it um not on camera <laughs> and wow. do it and in a safe space I was, but i was rushing through it too so yeah, of course, of course. and imagine that and it takes about 10 15 minutes for me to get through the person's entire body um and usually like we focus more less on stress um more around like their sexual maybe desire or arousal, um, mm -hmm. different things like that. Whatever they bring into the room. If they have sexual trauma, we might focus on moving their sexual trauma out of their body, um, something like that. Mm -hmm. But all of that brings awareness to their body. And again, kind of going back to my belief that everyone has some level of sexual desire somewhere outside of maybe your asexual folks. Um, but I'm talking more about people who identify as like a low sexual desire. Um, again, I think it's about accessing it. And mm -hmm. for a lot of people who say they have low sexual desire, they disassociate or they've lost touch with the mind body connection. And so that exercise just helps them kind of come into that connection. Mm -hmm. I guess after that demonstration, um, what uh, three Wait, good? You said yes very quickly, so good to you. <laughs> it was my brain went through like at least five different responses in my head before I said yes. Uh, but I guess uh, for you, what are three three good things about this practice? Um, I think just having awareness mm -hmm. is a good thing. I'm I'm always like a knowledge is power kind of person. So I want all the awareness. And I think being aware of what's happening in your body as you're moving through this world is so important. Um, and so I guess my first one is um, bringing awareness. The second one is um, creating a positive experience. And um, now that I'm thinking about it, because you're on camera and you're stressed, 
maybe this wasn't as positive as maybe it could be. So not a good example, but um, bringing a positive experience to being in your body um, in the safety of a session with someone that you trust, a clinician, or being at home on your own, or just kind of being out and about, but no one really realizing that you're doing what you're doing, focusing on your steps or focusing on your environment kind of thing. Um, and then the last one, I would say, being able to communicate with your partner, things that you notice, um, because now you're aware of them. And so now it gives you something to talk about or to bring attention to, to a sexual partner. Mm-hmm. How often would you practice, um, this mindfulness practice? Sure. I think for people starting out, um, I could, it's an easy daily thing. Um, for myself, who I think I'm fairly in tune with my body, I've done this practice. Um, I'm also like, this is my world. And so I try to um, lead by example, not just and like practice what I preach, so to speak. So um, I would say for people who are in tune with their body, they pay attention, um, they, if they notice something is off kilter, um, less so maybe once a week or when they're feeling disconnected from their body to reintroduce that connection. Um, and so maybe it's just like a case by case thing. Right. Yeah. And are there kind of any challenges that, what what challenges do you expect people might face in taking this apart from maybe being on camera? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I would say any type of trauma. Um, Mm. there's a reason why, people disassociate is they're, they can't be in their body. It's not safe. Um, and so timing of this is so important. So if you, um, have experienced any type of trauma are like, there's another book, the body keeps the score, um, written a long time ago, but still stands true today. And so I think really honing in on if you, if you're holding something and we're talking about getting in touch with it and then moving it around, if it doesn't want to be moved around quite yet or you're not ready to get in touch with it, um, it can be re-traumatizing. So I would say be careful with that. Um, same goes for like, I've heard uh, people who go get massages thinking this is going to be great. I'm going to get my foot massaged. And then all of a sudden they're crying in the masseuse's office because all these things that they didn't know about are coming up for them. Um, and so really kind of being first emotionally insightful and then going into your body when you're ready mm-hmm. how soon is too soon after or how soon maybe let me rephrase that how long should someone wait after experiencing trauma to attempt this because i'm assuming while it can be triggering it's also a means of repair so like where 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 does that line get drawn it's different for everyone um I would say most traumas for most people um, have a shock value to it. And so they're performing or like they're they're going in a direction and then all of a sudden it might hit them and they're going in a different direction. So you want to make sure that you're not in shock and you're thinking, I'm fine. Everything is fine. Let me just jump into this. Um, 
And so I would give a grace period, but what that grace period is, it varies mm-hmm. for everyone and probably the severity of the trauma for them, how they're kind of quantifying it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I guess based on your experience, do you have any other recommendations of a practice or a habit um, that can be combined with this one? Um, I think to my third one, thing around what's good about this practice, the communication aspect or being able to talk with your partner or partners. Um, So I would say checking in weekly, monthly. Hey, I noticed this thing about my body. Do you want to explore it with me? Or I would love to share it with you or I'm really struggling with it and I don't know what to do with it. Um, So having conversations around that or if it's um, focused on like arousal pieces or the desire piece, um, they're like, hey, I noticed that I carry a lot of arousal in like second erogenous zones, which second erogenous zones are like what we think of that are not our genitals, right? Like it's typical that we think of a penis shaft as being an erogenous zone, but we don't think of an elbow. But for some people, um, that is an erogenous zone for them. And they may notice that in their body scan. And it's nice to share that with their partner. Um, So I would say secondary to doing it on your own is, do you want to open that up and share it with your partner and maybe do it together or at least let them know what you found? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that kind of process of reflection can help as well when you open it up to another person. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, that brings us to the end of that section um, of our debrief. Uh, we've now got a couple of questions from our audience. Are you happy to answer them? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, cool. So the first question is, and we, we talked about this a little bit um, in earlier in the episode as well. Why is sexual desire the strongest at the beginning of a relationship? It's the chemical changes. Um so uh, Helen Fisher is the big researcher who's done this. She's out of Rutgers University in New Jersey, the USA. Um, but she she's compared the human brain to being on like crack cocaine in the first couple of months. And within that, you have your rose colored glasses, you take more risks, you all sorts of things. And within that lies sexual desire um, and the lust aspect of things. Mm. Mm-hmm. The next question is, um, is it a bad thing if lust is the foundation of a relationship? What type of relationship? If it's Just... friends benefits, it's probably great. Yeah. If it's a long-term or wanting to be a long-term relationship, it's probably not so great. Um, there's a researcher, um, I can't remember his first name. It's Sternberg's Triangle of Love, though. And um, he talks about there being, obviously, as a triangle. So three things on the triangle. Um, And passion is one of them. So that's like the lusting and the desire and all of that. But then there's intimacy and commitment. And so um, if you are looking to have a more fuller relationship, um, I would say, or he says, you need all three. So, um, yeah, I don't think that it bodes well for people if that's all they have is lust. Mm-hmm. Those relationships. Yeah, yeah. Um, and final question. Um, 
how do you bring your sexual desire back to the place it was when you first began a relationship? I think it's different for everyone. Um, again, so it's in, I would be curious how this person identifies if they're mm-hmm. a gender, like if they're female, male, um, because kind of what I touched on for females, research shows us that they need nuance. And so it might be, let's introduce something different to our um, sexual repertoire. Um, For men, it's more about desire in terms of feeling desired and wanting to know that their partner is lusting after them. Um, And so I think having a conversation around that and talking about like, what are my my biggest turn-ons? What are my kind of turn-offs? Emily Nagasaki in Come As You Are talks about accelerators and brakes. And so that's a good starting point or I guess frame of reference to talk about um, what are the things that really rev my engine and what are the things that I'm like, please leave at the door. Um, because if if your body is telling you something, um, but then your mind is saying, eh, is it worth it? Or would I rather just sit on the TV and eat my potato chips and carry on? Do I have to get undressed and get in the, the and do all of that? It's a big investment for some people. Um, and so they just, they don't. So making sure that the, what you're getting, I guess, when you get the sexual desire is worth it, um, which then in turn kind of feeds the sexual desire. Oh, I can't, I can't stop thinking about what happened last night. I want more of it. I'm craving it. Versus like, yeah, we did the thing last night and it's just the same as the other night and I could, I could leave it next time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the end of our audience questions. Um, that's all we have for you at the moment. Thank you. They very much appreciate that you've been able to answer it for them. Um, finally, we have our open mic um, in which I let you have a mini TED talk uh, on your own <laughs> about any topic um, that you feel needs to be addressed, whether that be something we might've missed during the episode, it could be something that's parallel to the episode, it could be something entirely different. Um, did you have something in mind? Um, I think communication, I've touched on it throughout, but uh, I say your biggest sex organ is in your brain. And so how you talk about sex and who you talk about it with and uh, the messaging that you've received, it's all so important. Um, and how you talk to yourself about sex and sexual desire and pleasure. Um, if you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, oh gosh, who's going to have sex with me? Or why would anyone want me? You already take yourself out of that game of going through and getting it. Um, versus if you have a lot of confidence. So I think communication with yourself and how you view yourself, what you feel that you deserve. Um, In a lot of societies, women aren't taught that their body can be for pleasure. They're only taught that it can procreate and have babies and produce milk and do all of these lovely things that mothers can do, but uh, women's bodies are, can they can do so much more. Um, And so I think conversation with self in terms of how your like sex positivity so building yourself up and then communication with your partner talking about what you desire um 
what you don't desire, what's not uh, fun for you or what's painful or um, what you're excited about, things like that. And I think not being afraid to, quote, hurt someone, you're not coming into the conversations to be vindictive or like purposely mean. Um, but what one person desires may hurt the other person's feelings for a variety of different reasons. So I think making sure that people can communicate in a way where they're owning, I need this, or I want this, or I'm interested. Um, but I also recognize that that may be hurtful for you to hear, or that that may bring emotions up in you. And I want to hear about that. So being really assertive in both of our needs matter in this, um, and holding space for each person. Mm. Um, so that I, I labeled it as the sexual desire. Sorry, I, I know it was supposed to be or not supposed to be, but about something different. So let's take it out of the context of sex. Communication. Uh, you build resentment when you don't talk. So making sure that you're checking in with your friends, your family members, your lover, whomever, um, and not being passive, although passive people, there are reasons why some people are passive. It lets parents who are passive with their children allow their children to grow and to kind of figure things out on their own um, without the parent kind of coming in and saying, no, do it like this or don't do that. Or um, so passivity has its place. Um, I think aggression also has its place and being more aggressive in how we communicate um, or the things we do, right? Like you think about maybe climbing the corporate ladder where you have your best your best interest and it may mean that your cubicle mate um, and you are up for the same job, but you want it and you go for it and you're a little aggressive in that. Um, so there's place for aggression, but I think aggressive communication with a loved one um, typically doesn't have a place and we want to make sure that we're softer and um, the Gottmans talk about soft startups or like and they oftentimes like start out with a joke or kind of make light of things or I know this might be hurt, hard for you to hear but I have to say it anyway kind of thing um, and so that leads into like being assertive in communication and usually assertiveness um, serves everyone children co-workers whomever so yeah, I think communication is my soapbox for this evening or where you're in afternoon, I'm in evening, but. Soapbox um, for the day, for the episode, yes. for sure. Um, one thing I really like that you said is, you know, people who regularly tune into the show will know that communication with your partner often comes up as a very important topic, but I really like that you also touched on communication with yourself um, just on your own. I feel like that's something that we we often don't place enough emphasis on, especially, you know, as, as a woman, um, the body image thing can be, can have such a hold on us, you know, beyond cultural norms, beyond all of that. And yeah, it is really important to kind of just check in with yourself and make sure that the way you see yourself isn't, you know, one, making you feel worse, but also setting you up for some uncomfortable experiences in the future. 100%. Yeah. I also think language is important, how we talk to ourselves. So, well, you're never going to get that versus, well, it's a challenge, but I'm up for it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just kind of 
yeah, it opens the door for you. Um, or calling yourself a loser um, when you can say, well, I made a mistake there, but I can try better next time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Being kind to yourself. Yeah. Super important. Yeah. For sure. Um, Natasha, where can um, our audience find you? Sure. Um, so I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, United States, but um, I do have a website. It's my company website. So you'll see me and all my lovely con- uh, clinicians on there at thebetteryouinstitute.com. Um, and it's all spelled out. So that's Y-O-U. Um, where else can we, they find me? I'm on LinkedIn. I don't check it very often though. Um, we also have an Instagram and Facebook. I think our handle is just the Better You Institute. Um, and where else? Again, I think just the streets of Philadelphia. Say hi. <laughs> the Eagles are up in the Super Bowl, which people are excited about. So I definitely know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I've had such a great time, um, despite despite the minor accident when I was trying to be <laughs> mindful. I have had a good time. Likewise. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And again, thank you for being brave and I, walking you through that. <laughs> thank you as well. You've been listening to Reliscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Lab. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found at re.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti. Thanks for tuning in.